Dear Father in heaven, now in our worship gathered together here, we've come to that very important time that we've set aside to listen to your word. And, you know, I'm the voice in the room that reads it, and I'm the one who's talking and making comments because you've called me to do that. But, Lord, you're the one that we need to hear from. And I pray, Lord God, that you, the Holy Spirit in us, would be our teacher and our guide. Convict us where we need convicting. Change us where we need changing. Let us be in full conformity with Christ in everything. That's the work of your power, and you do it by the instruction and the teaching that comes in your word. We know that. And we thank you, Lord, for it. Help us to listen carefully, take it seriously, be undistracted, and just focus in on your word now, how you might work in us, work in this church, work in every church, work in your church at large, the whole church, to bring us into conformity with Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm going to focus on today, it almost is going to become more like a Bible study than a sermon today, because this passage of Scripture, uh, we'll be emphasizing verse 18 over to the beginning of the next section, so verse 23. 18 through 23 is what we'll be focusing on in chapter 18, but, but um, you'll see that basically when you read it, it just kind of reads like it's giving some itinerant details concerning the Apostle Paul's travels. But I think when you look into it, there is, there's one particular aspect of what Paul is doing that I feel like just really jumps off the page. And I say Paul is doing because that's the human character in the narrative, but it's what God is doing in and through Paul and in his church, of course, right? Jesus, Jesus said, I will build my church. And that's what uh, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's what's happening here is Christ is building his church. And sometimes building the church takes the form of preaching the gospel and lots of lost people get saved. Well, it always is that, right? But building the church is also strengthening the disciples, strengthening and edifying and building up the church itself. Someone's car is being stolen outside. No one should steal a car from a church parking. No. All right. Okay. Um, if it's mine, take one of my vans, please. They're old. I, the, the vans you can have. Leave, leave me the car. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, now, I do want to back up before I start reading in verse 18. I want to set a little context by just drawing some attention to one particular part of the passage I preached last week that you know, it was the Lord's Supper, and, and, and I, I tend to leave a little, there's a little less time I try to keep to some sort of a schedule for y'all. And um, so, so I maybe could have emphasized this a little more last week. I realized it immediately, of course. I intended to, but wanted to stick with the time. But, you know, Paul's in Corinth, and, you know, we saw last week in the beginning of the chapter how the Spirit had compelled him to begin to speak boldly and then how God himself entered the picture to strengthen him and to build him up, right? And you look over in verse 9, and it says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. And this is what the Lord said to Paul. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And of course, we emphasized how that was the Lord intervening to give Paul strength and encouragement. Without maybe, in a detailed way, looking at every single thing that the Lord said there. So let me add a little of that detail now as an introduction to the next passage. So... There's that familiar comforting admonishment that you read several important places in the Bible. Do not be afraid. Right? And the Lord gives some backing for that. And the backing that the Lord gives uh, is, is basically threefold. Number one, he says what he has also said before. I'm with you. 
That's the promise of the Great Commission itself. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And then this, no one will attack you to hurt you. And that's, that's, a, that's a, a really precious and a bit even unusual uh, promise because there were many times where Paul was attacked. But to give him special encouragement, because as we pointed out last week, he was going to spend significant time in Corinth. And so God gave him that precious promise. No one's going to attack you and to hurt you. And then the third thing that he said was this, and this is the one that, that really stuck with me, for I have many people in this city. And you have to stop and ask yourself, what does he mean when he says, I have many people in this city? And it can only mean one of two things or both. And I think it means both of these things. When he says, I have many people in this city, he's certainly referring to the Aquilas and Priscillas who came with Paul, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ. He's certainly referring to other people who had already gotten saved. Uh, you know, all of that is true. But I think, I think the majority of people that he's referring to are people who haven't gotten saved yet. Do you understand? Like back in chapter 13 and verse 48, when he was in the regions of Galatia, we were told that uh, as many as were appointed to receive salvation believed. In God's mind, look, if God knows that no one's going to attack him to hurt him the next year and a half that he's going to be there, then God also certainly is fully aware of who's going to get saved, right? And this is a great picture of the sovereignty of God, right? The Lord, the Lord knows already in his mind how all of this is going to work out. And that must have given great comfort and great boldness to Paul. Paul was there just to obediently, faithfully, confidently do what the Lord called him to do, which was to speak and to not be afraid, but to be bold and to speak because God told him, I'm with you, no one's going to hurt you, and I've got lots of people here, right? And, you know, as, and as many as had been appointed to receive salvation would believe. It wasn't that Paul was going to go and just, just randomly just try to, to, to persuade people to get saved. He was just going to go and preach the gospel to as many people as he could. And as many as were gods were going to believe and get saved. Listen, it's way, it's, it, it's way too soon, way too early, way too much at the very beginning of his ministry for him to not be referring to that. Right? To say, to say that I have many people in this city when Paul's barely gotten started. It must refer to the people that are yet going to get saved. That should give you... Look, you and I are called to preach the gospel, right? And we're called to share the gospel with people. What that does is it gives me tremendous encouragement to know that my job is not to get people saved. My job is to just give out the gospel and God will save his elect. God will save his own. God will save his people. And you know, it's not intended to be an argument about election versus will and all this other stuff. Look, God is sovereign. He's over it all. He's overarching it all. He knows everything that's going to go down before it's even a thought in our minds. You understand that? That should give you confidence. We believe in and trust in and serve a God that's got everything under control. That's the Lord that we serve. And so when Jesus speaks those words, when the Lord intervenes and speaks those words to Paul to encourage him, I think that's what he's referring to. He's, he's like saying, listen, Paul, you do what I want you to do with great confidence because I've got this. Can you remember that? Can you remember that? Our brother Raymond needs to remember that and Sister Carmen. We need to remember that for them and with them. And we need to remember that day by day as we walk through our lives shining the light of Christ. And so what happens then is Paul spends a year and a half there. You get the account of what happens with Gallio and, and then poor Sosthenes. But Sosthenes ends up being a brother, right? But now we come to verse 18 and it tells us that Paul still remained a good while. And then that's it. 
Then he leaves in the next verse. So that's all we get at Corinth. But now watch this. Ready? Then he took his leave of the brethren. Right? The brethren being the ones who had set up shop in the house next door to the synagogue and became the church of Corinth. He took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. What's in Syria? His starting point, Antioch. So he's on his way back to his home church. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, them being Aquila and Priscilla. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. But I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch, which was in Syria. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all of the disciples. All right, we'll stop there. So, let's, that, that, that's a lot of like, you know, details of his travels. And you might look at that and say, what, it, 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 this is just a passage of scripture to kind of fill in between his first time in Ephesus and his second time in Ephesus, which comes immediately in chapter 19. But I think there's, I think there's an important common thread in that entire story that should cause us to pay attention and do a little Bible study and look at some other passages of Scripture. So he takes his leave of the brethren. Now, what had he, what had he done with the brethren? You know, it's the brethren now. So there's a church. So Paul spent his time in Corinth evangelizing, sure, but also ministering to the church and strengthening the brethren, strengthening the disciples, strengthening the brethren in the church, right? Then he leaves and he heads for Syria and he has Priscilla and Aquila come with him. Who are they? They're brethren. They're other fellow disciples who are part of the ministry of the church. And then it says he had his hair cut off at Centria for he had taken a vow. We're not 100% given all the details of what that vow was, but the way that the period of a vow would end was by cutting a hair. Part of the, the Nazarite vow um, that's described in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament was that you, they, they took a vow and they couldn't cut their hair during the whole period of time. So the way that the vow would end would be by cutting off the hair. And according to, you can read it in like the MacArthur Study Bible or any other commentary you read, what the idea was that, uh, was that the person who finished their vow, if they were unable to complete their vow in Jerusalem at the temple, wherever they completed their vow, they would cut their hair and they would actually have to hold on to the hair and carry the hair to Jerusalem. That to, to show that he had completed his vow properly. That's why, that's why he is so adamant about, nope, not going to stay here, going to make it all the way to Jerusalem, right? So his, uh, his vow period ends at Centria. It's interesting, though, that we're told that it ends at Centria. Who's, who's the most famous person in Scripture who was at Centria? Anyone know? It's a little bit obscure, but you'll know the name when I say it. A woman named Phoebe. A woman named Phoebe, who's mentioned in the Salutations in Romans chapter 16, she was a servant of, ready, the church at Centria. So, what can we deduce from that? What does good Bible exposition deduce from that? 
There was a church in Centria, and Paul stopped there and ministered to them. So, right? So, Paul's ministering. So, Paul ministers in Corinth. Paul ministers in Centria. And then he goes to Ephesus. And that's where uh, Aquila and Priscilla part because God has plans for them that you'll see in the passage coming up after this one. Uh, But he himself does what he always does. He goes into the synagogue and reasons with the Jews. Now, you see what happens in verse 20? They ask him to stay a longer time with them. Why? Because there's an opportunity to minister and to share the word of God and to strengthen people in the teaching of the word of God. But because he had taken this vow and needed to get to Jerusalem within a a certain period of time to present the hair to show that he had like finished his period of his vow, uh, he did not consent, but took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. So what does he want to do? He wants to come back to them so he can minister to them and strengthen them, strengthen the church, strengthen the disciples. By the way, a little side note on this vow. Isn't it a beautiful and loving thing, a little off the main subject, but it's a beautiful and loving thing that you see Paul being so diligently attentive to this vow. Listen, after all the business in Galatia, and the ongoing problem with Judaizers, and all of the issues with people who were trying to impose the tenets and laws and regulations of the Jewish religion, the law of the old covenant on Gentiles who believed. After Paul did all that battle and combat spiritually with all of that, the accusation that might come to Paul would be, you're just trying to destroy Judaism. And so here's Paul doing what? Not adhering to the law because he's trying to justify himself before God, but by taking this vow and then properly completing this vow and then properly going to Jerusalem to do it the way that they were were taught to do it, he's showing, I'm not against Judaism. Listen, as strong as as Paul was in saying, you cannot add keeping the law, circumcision, and everything else to someone getting saved, he never commanded the Jews, you must walk away from everything that, that, that you were raised in, right? There was, this, there was this thing where love, love decreed, love demanded that the Gentiles not make the Jews stumble and the Jews not impose Judaism on the Gentiles. That's the love balance that is in Christianity, that when acted upon, that when walked in, what? Shows the world that we are Christ's disciples, that we have love for one another. What Paul is doing here is love. It's an affirmation of his love for his Jewish brethren by adhering to all this. It's the same reason why he did what with Timothy? He circumcised Timothy. After all the stuff with Galatia, then he circumcises Timothy, right? And, and you're like, well, wait, why did he do, do all this stuff when he wrote Galatians and saying that you can't demand circumcision? Then he circumcises Timothy when he meets him. It's because Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Greek father, and it might have been a stumbling block to the Jews that were part of the church that Timothy, as a youth, had never been circumcised. Right? Because when he was born, all of the people who lived near them, all the people that he grew up with, and he was still a young man, would have probably known, you know, we never really see Timothy in the synagogue. His parents never even got him circumcised. It was probably well known. So to not be a stumbling block because of love, because of love, because of love. He didn't circumcise Timothy because he thought Timothy needed to be circumcised to be saved. Of course not, right? But he did out of love for his Jewish brothers. You follow that? All right. So that explains the doubt. Now back onto the main thread of all of this. So, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I'll return to you, God willing, right? Because it was always up to the Lord. Everything in our lives. It's nothing wrong with making plans. Paul made plans to go back to Ephesus, but he knew that the plans would only come to pass if the Lord willed, right? So he said so. That's a good practice for us. So he sails from Ephesus. Now it says he landed at Caesarea, and gone up and greeted the church. 
Now, what church is that? That's the church at Jerusalem. In the biblical literature, one always goes up to Jerusalem. Caesarea would be the Mediterranean port that was very near Jerusalem, where ships would land, and someone on their way to Jerusalem would disembark at Caesarea and then go up to Jerusalem. And when he goes up to Jerusalem, what does he do? He greets the church in Jerusalem. And then he goes down to Antioch in Syria. And what happens when he gets there? He spends some time with them. And then when he departed from there, then he goes over the whole region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening the disciples. So he goes back over all of those churches that were started in Galatia and Phrygia, one at a time. You know, Antioch and Pisidia, Lystra, Iconium, all these places, one after another. He goes in and stops at each church and preaches, teaches, strengthens, preaches, teaches, strengthens. So if you follow all this, if you can see yet what I'm getting at, what is this, what is this showing us? First, he strengthens by his ministry the church in Corinth. And God is the one doing this through his preaching and teaching of the word. The church. Then to Centria, fellowship with the church. Then Jerusalem, he greets the church. Then he goes to Antioch and spends time with the church. Then he goes to Galatia and Phrygia and strengthens the disciples who are in all of the churches. In fact, when he wrote the book of Galatians, it's addressed to the churches of Galatia. See what you're seeing here? We have seen, listen everybody, we have seen in so much of Acts, Paul the evangelist. Here we see Paul the churchman. That's very important. Paul was all about establishing, strengthening, building, sustaining, protecting, and seeing that the Lord freely used local churches. The church, as it, listen, the church itself is the body of all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who has been born again through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they comprise what is the church. But the Bible also speaks of churches. And that is because the way that what the church is, this supernatural body of all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, where Jesus himself is the head, the in time, in the flesh, in the earth manifestation to the world and to one another of that supernatural reality, look around the room. Look around the room. Is this. This is how the church is manifested when it assembles together. And so what I want to do is just share with you today. Do you all see that? Do you all see the time? Everywhere Paul goes, he ends up with a church. Everywhere he goes, he ends up stopping to minister to a church, to strengthen the disciples, because the disciples are assembled and gathered in church. God doesn't save people and then just expect that they walk through life on their own. So many people I have heard say over the years, you know, you don't need to go to church to be saved. Perhaps there's some theological reality to that. But you know what? You need to go to church if you've been saved. I'm going to say, you need to go to church if you've been saved. You need to be in this. Whether it's this one or another one, you need to be in community with other believers. Jesus said he would build his church and this is the way that he builds it. And history bears that out. It's really only in the modern world that you have professing believers with a very low, light, casual, flippant, uncommitted view of church. That's a modern phenomenon. That's dangerous because you're destroying yourself and really you're undermining everybody else by not participating. Do you understand that? 
Paul was an evangelist, but Paul was a church guy. You know, I preached. Now I'm going to start looking up some other passages of Scripture with you. Ready? How great is it the way the Lord just works things out sometimes? Turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. And let's start right where we left off yesterday. Yesterday, yes. This is, this is, this is the message that I share at every wedding. Now, I'm not going to give it to you the same way. So, let's start here. Did you know that the institution of marriage, when God, listen to me, when God was in the Garden of Eden, and God was creating everything, there was some moment where God, ready, thought. I want you to think about that. God had the idea. We always think about God as having ideas. But the Bible says that by wisdom, he founded the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth are the exercise of his power, but it started in his mind. In the Garden of Eden, God thought to himself. Not only am I going to create woman out of man and bring them together to be husband and wife and they'll become one flesh. And later on, when Jesus was alive, he said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. But God thought something to himself that nobody realized until Jesus came. He, and that's why this passage of scripture, you're in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. Look at verse 32. This is a great mystery. Verses 22 all the way up through 31 describe how wives should submit to their husbands the way, the way the church submits to Jesus. And the way husbands should love their wives the way Jesus loves his church. And then the apostle writes in verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. As I explain at every wedding that I conduct, the word mystery isn't the way that you think of it. We think of mystery and we think of like a novel that somebody wrote. Or we think of a movie that has some cliffhanger that you're going to be surprised. Mystery in the Bible, in the New Testament, refers to something that has a deeper meaning, that deeper meaning not being revealed and understood until Jesus came. So in God's mind, when he created Adam and then created Eve and then instituted marriage, in God's own mind, he was already thinking to himself, Adam, Eve, husband, wife, this is going to be a picture of Jesus and church. That was already in God's mind. And that was revealed when Jesus came and said, I will build my church and then died for our sins and rose from the dead. And now people who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ have their sins blotted out. They are forever reconciled to God and they become part of his church. Listen to me. Christ's own bride. That was on God's mind in the Garden of Eden. And God, God brought it about and then reveals it to the apostle. And so when the apostle says, here's how wives ought to be, here's how husbands ought to be. By the way, this is a mystery, but I, I'm not just talking about husbands and wives. I'm talking about Christ and the church. The church ought to submit itself to Jesus. See, what I do, what I do in the weddings when I share this is I point out the relationship between Jesus and his church. And then I, like I, I a married couple right here, I just got married so I can use them as an example. I say, I say, I say, Tiffany, submit yourself to Ben like Jesus does to the church. Ben, love Tiffany the way Jesus does the church. You understand? But now, you know what you need to do? You need to flip that around, Right? And you need to see, you need to see how wonderful husband, a brand new married couple. Th th beautiful, right? Th think, of, think, of, think of people you know. Think of the blessing of your own marriage. Think of people that you know that are married and you just know that like they love the Lord. And you see, and you see, you see a husband. Look, we're not perfect, right? We'll all mess up. But you see a husband loving his wife. You see a wife submitting to her husband. You see all, you see, look. And then you think to yourself, for all of the human flaws, 
This is supposed to be how the church is with Jesus. Jesus loves the church perfectly. Look what it says in Ephesians 5. He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her, that's the church, in Jesus in the church, right? It's a husband and his wife. This is how a husband is with his wife, but it depicts Jesus in the church. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy without blemish. That's how a husband ought to love his wife. That's the way that Jesus loves the church. And so what ought the church to do in response? What a loving bride does. Gladly, humbly, eagerly, lovingly submits herself to her husband. Sometimes I wonder if that gets lost on church people because it's so lost in society. We don't take our cues from the world. Do you understand that? We don't take our cues from what society forces upon people. Husbands love their wives. Wives submit to their husbands. And when you see it, you think to yourself, that's the relationship between Jesus and the church. And you and I are the church. Listen, we're not just people who go somewhere every Sunday morning. We're, ready? Christ's own bride. Look at all the wedding decorations. Is, is it inappropriate that we're talking about this when, the, when it looks like this in here today? I mean, this is it. We're the bride. He's the groom. That ought to affect not just how you think, but how you act towards the church. Towards the church. The church collectively submits to Jesus. The individuals in the church prioritize the church in their lives. Because the church is Christ's own bride. If we mistreat the church, if we deprioritize the church, if we undermine the church, whose bride are you messing with? You follow? Think of that in human terms. Think of how a good husband reacts if someone's messing with his wife. And he's a flawed man. Think of how the Holy Son of God intervenes in the life of his bride. See, I say all of that because I want you to see the majesty and the glory of it all. I want you to see that like God wasn't fooling around. God wasn't just, this is not God using Paul to be clever when he writes this. It is ingenious. But it's not just some clever observation. It is spiritual reality. Spiritual truth. The church is the bride of Christ. Conduct yourself towards it appropriately. With the priority and the love and the devotion and the care that it deserves. And guess what happens? Guess what happens if everyone devotes themselves to the bride the way they should? You know... When Tiffany showed up for her wedding a couple weeks ago, when Jamie showed up for her wedding yesterday, she had, they both had like this whole entourage of ladies who were like helping them get the dress just right, get the hair just right, and everything right, you know. And then, you know, the music starts and, and the bridesmaids come up. And then there's that moment where like in the ceremony where everyone stands up for the bride because there's the bride, right? And she's there. When we act towards church, we're doing that to Christ's bride. When we love one another, listen, when we pray for one another, when we use our liberty to serve one another and not just take care of ourselves, when we stop looking at church as that thing that I'll get to if I have time and look at it as Jesus Christ's bride and attend to it appropriately, because it's the bride of Christ. Guess what happens to it? It becomes beautiful. And guess what? You're part of it. So it enhances and beautifies your own life. You're it. You understand? 
The church gets strengthened when everyone participates. And you're one of those everyone. You contribute and you receive. That's what fellowship is. Koinonio. It means to share. Right? Sharing involves giver and receiver. And both are highly blessed. View the church as Christ's bride. Now, you're in Ephesians already. Turn back a page. Look, I told you it would be like a Bible study. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. One chapter back. Look at verse 11. And he himself, who's that? That's the groom. That's the head of the church. He himself, that's Jesus. Gave some, we've gone over this passage so many times, but here it is again. I'm pretty sure it's not going to be the last time we come here either. He, gave himself, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for what? Why? Why did God anoint these people to preach the word of God? Because that's what they all do. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The thing they all have in common is they handle God's word in the hearing of God's people. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. That's what church does. This preaching and teaching of God's word equips people to do the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. That means that there's the bride. To build up, to beautify, to make her just beautiful. That's why God gave people who can teach and preach God's word. Because, you know, God's word is like the wedding gown. God's word is like the makeup. God's word is like the, 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 the work that's done on the hair. God's word is the thing that beautifies. And God gives these people who are gifted to handle the word of God so that it's preached and taught so that the church gets built up. Until, uh, look at this. Look at this, ready? Uh, Edify means to build up. Now look at this. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Look at this. To a what? Perfect man. And this phrase, ready for this? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, fully, completely grown up to the measure. In other words, Christ is our measuring stick. The ministry of assembling and hearing the word and preaching the word and sharing the word. The purpose of it is to make the church... The church, we, that's the church, to make the church like Christ. You see, see, so you see when Paul, when Paul is going from Corinth back to Antioch, it's not just like an express flight, you know, where it's like, I don't want to stop anywhere. He stops everywhere. It's the exact opposite. He stops everywhere and everywhere he goes. Centria, Jerusalem, Antioch, Corinth, Ephesus, everywhere he goes. He stops and meets with the disciples in the church to strengthen and edify him because he knows that the measuring stick is Christ himself. You see this? This should shape your view of church. This should shape your view of God's body. This should shape your view of Christ's own bride and should direct your commitment to it and participation in it. This is God's word. First Timothy, another Pauline saying, First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. I like pointing this verse out when I get the chance. So First Timothy is what we call a pastoral epistle. And... It's called that because Timothy eventually arrives in the position of pastor over the church at Ephesus. And Paul writes these two letters, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, to Timothy, 
who's leading the church at Ephesus. And there's so much in this that leads up to this. He starts in the beginning of 1 Timothy, just giving praise and glory to the Lord, of course. And then he eventually gets to the point where he talks about how men are all called to pray, talks about the roles of men and women in the church. He talks about what is necessary if someone's going to be in the ministry of the pastorate, the overseer in the church. And you realize he's giving all of, you realize he's giving all of these instructions to Timothy that are for not just Timothy, but they're for the good of what? The church. He's strengthening the church at Ephesus by writing to Timothy. And just so you know that I'm right about that, look at verse 14 of chapter 3. These things, he tells them why he's writing. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. I mean, I mean I'm writing to you. I want to come in person, but I'm writing to you. Why? But if, just in case I'm delayed, if I'm delayed, I write so that what? You may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. And in case you don't know what he's talking about when he says the house of God, which is the church. Now I'll get to the rest of that in a moment because it's pretty powerful what he says next too. Timothy, Paul is basically saying to Timothy, I'm writing all this stuff to you because how you conduct yourself in the church matters to the groom of the church. Right? And so that's why the instructions are to be followed and taken seriously. That's why the people's hearts who are in that church need to be given to the ministry of that church because it's Christ's bride, man. This is why, this is why churches that don't emphasize, it's not, listen, we're not perfect, we're not even big, we're not significant, I guess, whatever, you know, cares about any of that anyway. Look, when churches don't give attention to God's word as the highest priority of everything that they do, when it just becomes about games, when it just becomes a social thing, when it just becomes about politics, when it just becomes about whatever it else can just become about. And it's not about carefully being drawn to worship and service through the preaching and teaching of God's word. Churches are wasting time. Paul writes all this stuff to Timothy and says, just in case I'm delayed, I want you to know how you ought to conduct yourself. And now ready? Ready to see what he says next? How you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Ready? Look at this phrase. The pillar and ground of the truth. What's a pillar? A pillar holds something up. Right? Go right outside our front door. And there's on the corner of the front steps there, there's pillars that hold up the roof. What's ground? The idea of the word ground there is the foundation. Right? You know what's amazing? What doesn't he say here? He doesn't say that the Bible is the pillar and ground of the truth. He says the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. In other words, the church is what... Listen, the Word of God is the truth. The church is the ground, the foundation from which it's preached. The church is the pillar that holds it up. That's why the church must be treated with such high priority in your life. Because the church is what holds the truth up. The church is the foundation ground from which the truth is thundered through a, to a surrounding world that needs to hear it. Amen? Well, the Bible makes some really incredible statements about the church. And what, just so you know, what's drawn me to this is reading that passage in Acts and seeing that wherever Paul goes, he stops at a church and spends time strengthening them. Because Paul realizes right from the beginning of his ministry there, you know, he realizes this is the way the Lord works. The church is his bride and the church needs to be strengthened in the world because this is what the world is looking at to see his love. To see his truth. It's the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Wow. 
I could just stop there. I mean, that ought to be enough to convince anybody. The church is the bride of Christ and it's the pillar and ground of the truth. And Jesus said, I will build it and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church, the body of Christ, manifest in local assemblies. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. So Timothy's not the only guy that got a letter concerning the importance of church. Turn to Titus chapter 1. Uh, so he makes his introduction beautiful and glorious in verses 1 through 3. In verse 4, he says who he's addressing. There's that beautiful greeting, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then just like he said to Timothy in the verses I just read, here's why I wrote to you, he gives Titus a here's why I wrote to you. Or at least he says this, for this reason I left you in Crete. Okay, so Timothy was in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Titus was on the island of Crete, which is in the Mediterranean Sea. Why? That you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. And then he gives the qualifications for all of that. And that becomes what's dominant in the letter, right? And as you read through the rest of the letter, you realize what Paul is doing is the same thing that he did when he wrote to Timothy. He is ordering the church on the island of Crete. And what's really amazing to see is he says that I want you to leave, I want you to, where is it? I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking. Look, appoint elders what? In every city. In other words, I want, in other words, every city had its local gathering. You see? The manifestation of the church, not just appoint elders, and that's it. Oh, he's a good elder, he's a good elder. Appoint elders in every city. Because that's where the church is gathered and met in every city. So Paul writes a letter in the Bible that is for the purpose of instructing Titus to appoint elders in every city where the gospel had been preached and little pockets of believers had been formed. Why? What does that do? It establishes local churches and strengthens churches and strengthens and beautifies the body of Christ. That's what that accomplishes. You see it? All right. Now, one last passage of scripture that I'll turn to. You know you're not going to have a pass, you're not going to have a sermon or a Bible study or a message about the importance of church without looking at what? Someone knows. Hebrews 10 Hebrews 10:24. Turn there. I know some of you knew that you're just afraid to say it in case you were wrong because you know there's like thousands of people listening online and well, no, there's probably not thousands, but, but um, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. You know, you're not going to talk about the importance of church without at least visiting this passage of Scripture, right? The writer of Hebrews, who might be Paul, but is not identified in the text, says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So what is laid out there, the conf- what is the confession of our hope? The confession of our hope is that we believe that through faith in Jesus Christ and through faith in him alone, we are redeemed, we are reconciled to God, we walk with him by faith, we are promised everlasting life, and he will come again one day and appear and receive us to himself. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That is the confession of our hope. It's all about Jesus. He says, let's hold on to that without wavering because he who promised, the one who made all those promises is faithful. If, if the one who makes the promises is faithful, then we need to be faithful to, to the confession of it, right? He's faithful to do it. We need to be faithful to confess it and believe it and proclaim it, right? And... I read verse 23 because verse 24 starts with the word and. Conjunction, junction, what's your function, right? It links, it hooks up verses and phrases and clauses, but it also hooks up ideas. 
right? And, and that's the idea here. Everyone in my generation caught that reference. I just realized the younger ones have no idea what I'm talking about, probably. Go, go YouTube it later, all right? All right. Okay, um, Schoolhouse Rock. Okay, so, uh, and what? So in addition, ready, ready, ready? In, in other words, on the same level, on the same level as holding on to the confession of our hope, and the confession of our hope, hold, holding on to the confession of our hope without wavering is very high. Very high importance. On the same level with it. And what? Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. This is all one sentence. Let us, in other words, think. Be considerate. Be thoughtful towards others. Not look out for yourself. Right? Which, frankly, for a lot of people in the modern age, in the modern American age, the approach to church is think of me first. It is not the biblical admonishment that has been lost in a lot of modern 21st century American living and practice and elsewhere in the world. Let us think of one another in order to stir up love and good works. There's that, there's that viewing it as Christ's bride and not just as something that I'll go to when I feel like it. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And this, this is the part of it that everybody knows. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We don't, we, don't, we don't just set aside assembling together. The idea of forsaking is not... Oh, man, it was Sunday. I forgot to go to church. That's not the idea. The idea of forsaking is willfully just, just setting it aside for the sake of other stuff. Now, everyone misses stuff. I do. Everyone like, goes away to travel. You, do. you should. It's, great. It's, not, it's not like a legalism. You must be in church every Sunday. That's not what it is. But the practice of your life, if you're a Christian, ought to be you're assembling together with the believers in your church. Not just, oh, well, there's a couple of Christians. I'll just go hang out with them. I'll go play golf with them today, and that'll be church. That's not the... You're doing it wrong, right? That's not the idea. The idea is you have a family, a body of believers that you're committed to, and they're committed to you, and you're thinking of them. And because you think of them, you don't forsake assembling with them. And you know what? They're thinking of you. And everyone's thinking of everyone else. And so you know what the result is? Love and good works are stirred up. Now look at this word. As is the manner of some. Are you kidding? In the first century, there were already people who blew off church. I mean, it was brand new. You know? I mean, there were people who didn't even know what church was yet, and there were already people stepping it. Such is the nature of man. Such is the pattern and the habits of this world. Such is the way that the world has really not changed, has it? You're told what? Don't do that like others do. but exhorting one another. You know what that means? That exhortation means to like encourage someone, to nudge someone in the right direction. We're not supposed to forget assembling. We're actually supposed to encourage each other to do it. And even more and more, you see it? I'm not making this up. I'm reading it. I'm just reading it right off the page. Sometimes I wonder if people think I'm just... I'm reading it. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. What's the day? That's the return of Christ. That's the day of the Lord. That whole era that's coming. Not just the actual return of Jesus, but everything connected with it. His kingdom reign. Everything. That day is coming. Do you mean to tell me you can't see that coming? The day of the Lord is coming. And what we're supposed to do is exhort one another. Encourage one another. And the way you do that is by assembling together. That's his bride. That's his bride. He's the groom. 
And we all have a part in getting the bride ready for the wedding day. What can I do? Just go. There's something happening. Just come. You have... Listen, let me, bid, let me, let me uh, make a little risk. I don't want to be offensive. But from the perspective of someone who for his, basically his whole life as a Christian, not just my pastorate, God knows, not just my pastorate, but long before that, from the perspective of someone who has always, no pride in this, this is just the Lord. The Lord's just always put this strongly in my heart. I have always just gone to everything. If something was happening at church, I was there. Not legalistically, not because I thought like, ooh, I'm scoring points with God. No, no, I loved, loved it from the beginning. Right? From that perspective, at the risk of you thinking I'm being proud in some way, which God knows I am not. From that perspective, nothing is more encouraging And showing up at a meeting with a full room of people who want to worship and want to pray and want to study God's word and want to stir each other. What can you do? Show up. Be there. Participate. That's the message of the whole thing. Participate. And, and, And having people not participate discourages There's no middle ground. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but there isn't. That's from the perspective of a Christian who for over 30 years has been a church rat. All right? Nothing's better than all hands on deck. Nothing's worse than where is everybody. And I know both experiences just here in this church. I know what it is some of you, few of you go back far. If I know what it is in the early days of my pastorate at 10 o'clock to stand in that window looking out in the parking lot and wondering, is anyone going to show up? I know what that is. And I know what it is to stand in front of a beautiful, fairly full room like this, knowing there's others joining us online. And the encouragement and strength that comes from that assembled body of believers, there's nothing like it on planet Earth. And that's what this passage says. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Do you see it? Do you feel it? Do you sense it? Do you know he's coming? Do you know he's coming? Do you know he's coming? Do you think it's just a story in a book, or do you know he's coming? Then let's get at it. Our Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, so much for the example of Paul, your servant. We don't speak to Paul's glory, we speak to yours. That you used him wherever he went, even just in his travels, trying to get from point A to point B. You used him wherever he went to strengthen your church, because your church is your bride. And it is strengthened when your word is taught. It is strengthened when people faithfully participate and attend. It is strengthened. It is strengthened. And when I say it is strengthened, it's the people, the disciples. It's the people in the church. This passage said that he strengthened the disciples. The church is the disciples. Forgive us where we've been lax. Forgive us where we've let the world influence our decisions. Help us to give attention because we do see your day approaching. Lord, the message today was directed mostly at people in the church. But I know that there's people listening, either in the room or online. There's people listening who maybe they're not even in the church. Maybe they're not part of the church because they've not believed the gospel. I pray, Lord God, that what we sang about today, what we preach about all the time, that they would know, Lord God, that because of sin, they are alienated from you. But that because of your great love, 
you have made a way for them to be redeemed and reconciled to you. And that way is Jesus. And you, Lord Jesus, you suffered through the justice and wrath of the Father when you died on the cross. You were buried. And on the third day you rose from the dead. And the preaching of that message and the believing of that message is all of your power to save someone who believes. Please, Lord, open someone's heart today to believe the gospel that they might be saved. And open the hearts of your own children to receive the teaching about your bride that we may give attention. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen.